0: Hi, everyone. It's Dina McKay, and I'm back with a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged, the podcast that allows Blacks in tech to share their authentic stories with you. On each episode, a guest talks about how they got into tech, their work, and lessons they've learned during their journey. You can find full show notes for this episode on blacktechunplugged.com. On this episode, episode 16, I have Emil Cambry on the podcast and we discuss how he took an unemployment office and turned it into a tech social injustice space. His experience with working with his wife, Kelly O. Cambry, which you would have heard her story if you listened to episode three of Black Tech Unplugged. If not, go check it out now. And last but not least, Emil challenges me in two ways during this episode. So yes, I am challenged on my own podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode. And if you do, please go over to iTunes today and rate and subscribe to the podcast. Now let's get it. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged. I have Emil Cambry, the founder of Blue 1647.
1: Hi, Emil. How's it going? Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. So to get started, so I know you from the Chicago tech scene, and I think we met actually in New York for the first time. Yes, we did. And so for people who don't know, let's explain what you do and what Blue 1647 is
1: okay so i founded blue 1647 uh in august of 2013. Uh, we're part co-working space part digital vocational school and part business accelerator. we really wanted to be a place where people can on-ramp into the tech community to be around people that look like them but also to feel comfortable that there's a culture and a community around technology development that they can plug into with people who really care and want to see the world be a better place through technology
0: Yes, and I've actually taken some classes and I visit Blue quite often, so I know the whole community aspect that you guys bring and the uniqueness of your, what I would call an incubator.
1: Absolutely. Well, we like Innovation Center because we really thought of ourselves as technology innovation and social innovation. And social innovation to me is really about economic justice. It's about making sure everybody feels like they have a chance in this 21st century economy. So we um, are part incubator, but we wanted to make sure we didn't limit ourselves because of our higher purpose.
0: Actually, let's talk about the social innovation part of Blue. What are you guys doing currently?
1: Yeah, a couple things. I mean, it's part of the DNA of our organization, but. Um, one of the things that we really wanted to do with social innovation was try to think about how could anyone who wants to learn can learn and anyone who wants to work can work and that's our like big hairy audacious goal that we have but really, our goal is to see how do we make it as easy as possible for people to plug in. Um, so if you're a young person, or we start with programs for youth as young as three years of age. So you get a chance to be a part of our K through 12 pathway called Blue Studios, where you can plug in and um, learn about so many different concepts in our partnership with Paige and Paxton. If you're a young adult, you know we have a bunch of different programs from workforce development and being able to take your ideas and concepts if you want to start a business and really bring cool people around you. Uh, we just felt like the current um, capitalist structure is kind of broken in many ways, and we started to think about what these new collar jobs were going to involve. And new collar to me is just an opportunity for people to use the digital world, the innovative Uh, space to really be able to create new opportunities for themselves their family and their people in their community
0: that's awesome and i definitely see that when i come to blue and the people who are associated with blue so i'm happy to see that and also you mentioned patient packs then which we had kelly on the podcast before and kelly is your wife she is and so how do you deal with being married and then you guys are basically your partners in this
1: yeah you know i think uh, one of the things kelly and i just really hit it off very quickly for a couple reasons you know one is you know really this commitment to family and being able to think about creating um for generational wealth and opportunities and access and you know we're really passionate about education obviously really um, passionate about giving people opportunities and you know um they say sometimes it's not good to work with your spouse but you know that's kind of who we are you know i work all the time so work is a big part of my life um she works a lot as well so it's a big part of our life so we found a real cool way to put it all together and i think um, it's not for everybody but for us it really works and uh, it forces us to over communicate about certain things and. You can't necessarily not bring your work home with you but it's really created a cool dynamic because we have separate lanes we have ways in which we can support each other but i just thought that it was really important for a black family or start a new family to really think about you know how can we combine our strengths and that's what was done throughout history and so we want to just make sure that we Carry on that legacy. We use it as an opportunity to be better. And, uh, you know, I'm a really big fan of her work as well. So I want to just find ways that I can support her along the way.
0: So I've had Dee and Fabian from Black Tech Mecca on, and they are a married couple as well. So do you have any tips for people who are married or dating, but they're doing things with their spouse or significant other in regards to the business?
1: I'm not the expert on (laughs) dating by any stretch. But, you know, the one thing I say is it's all about communication. But it's also making sure that, you know, for myself, making sure she wins on a lot of different opportunities. It's really never about me. It's about what we can do together. And if she looks great, then we both look great. And really being able to see that. And, you know, I think when I was younger, I really didn't have that perspective. This is something that's just come with age. But you start to really see exactly, like, how do you become a better supportive teammate, better supportive partner, and and really, you know, start to take – the idea that a black family working together is not, you know, uh, uncommon. It's something that should be part of our new normal. And, you know, I've really been uh, fortunate, I think, to uh, have this opportunity to be able to support someone who's doing great things. And she supports me in so many great ways, too. So we really kind of balance each other out.
0: Okay. And one thing that you mentioned was a new normal and that's been the slogan for when you've moved to blue lacuna so what is the new normal to you
1: well the new normal for us has always been that it's it's normal to do the things that we kind of celebrate as almost outliers you know we we say that hey black people supporting each other is an outlier so Mm -hmm. when they do it it's something we should celebrate yes we should celebrate because we should encourage it but also it should be normalized you know me going shopping at a black business is something that is not seen as like a you know once a year once a month thing it's part of my daily activity me supporting black women should not be something that is new it should be something that i do every single day me supporting my family and being and thinking about ways in which i can enlarge her business should not be a new uh, a a new thing Mm -hmm. so really start to say like all these ideas that we have like let's Increase our bar in what we expect uh, people to accomplish, our communities to accomplish, and how can we work together to, you know, make the world the place we want to live
0: in. And that's your current slogan. But let's take a step back, even, and when Blue first started, and this was just an idea. How did you get it to where it is now?
1: It was the hardest thing I'll ever have to do. Um, knock on wood, I'll say that. Um, but it was it was challenging because. We had too few resources. We had too few support systems. We had nothing, and you know, we were naive in some capacities because we thought that you know we started with the MVP in our previous space, which was 1647 South Blue Island, which uh, we take our name from. Um, it was a former unemployment office, it had been unoccupied for four years, it wasn't a place that anyone would see as a place of innovation. It was a place where people sought out um, services. And we started to think like, what if we changed that narrative from a place where people sought off services because it was a you know it was a negative time in their lives where they had lost their job, where they needed uh, support to think about, you know, economic justice and being able to be prepared for the 21st century. But when we got there, you know, the place just did not look great. It didn't have any, not one bell, not one whistle. Um, We had to literally rip out the carpet, throw it away. Um, I was unaware of just how much it costs, actually. You know, it's a 10,000 square foot space, um, had no natural light in the space. And we just said, okay, like, let's put primer all around the perimeter. Um, and just invite artists from the community, and we offer them like pizza and beer, and say, hey, we'll pay for the paint, but you know, this is an art community. Like, can you bring your talents to the space? Because this is what this space is going to become. And uh, we really had to refine our story and really had to show like what we wanted to do. So everything was like, hey, what we're going to do, what we wanted to do. And you know, we had some great artists that truly believed that we were gonna do what we said we were gonna do. So when we kept Encountering those tough times and many tough times, uh, we had to think back to all the people that donated their services, their time, their energy, and believed in you. So that's what helped you, you know, uh, not quit.
0: That's the vibe I got when I would walk in there. Everything was so community-based, and everything was, like you said, the painting is community. The vibe that you get is welcoming. So I never knew that it was an used to be an unemployment office though.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, when you see the first pictures of the space, I mean, like, old school wood, it was wood paneling all around, and, Mm -hmm. you know, probably is a fire hazard now (laughs) by today's codes, but, you know, um, luckily we didn't get in, in trouble for that, but it was just not the place you would see, but then, you know, really made me think, like, innovation can take place anywhere, if you have the right people, the right process, the right thoughts and energy and people to, you know, put it all together, and, you know, it... Let me know that so much is possible in places that other people wouldn't, you know, think would be.
0: Right. And actually, let's touch on finding the right people and resources. So you built this space, you start bringing the community to help you. But where did you how did you develop the right team around you and how did you develop the right resources to get everything done?
1: yeah it was a challenge you know when you don't have any money (laughs) when your bills are past due it's tough to bring people on board that you know but i think it was just a testament to like what we were trying to do and you know we weren't perfect at all you Mm -hmm. know um there's some definite uh, partners and people in which you know i have some regrets and things i could have handled better but you know when you don't have any resources you just kind of take anybody who's interested in these ideas so we really broadcast our ideas a lot of what we were trying to do and we said we weren't perfect so our -hmm. our original logo showed like architectural lines through it because we wanted to say like this isn't perfect Mm -hmm. this is our first version and it, we, maybe we never get perfect, and that's not the goal, but it's this aspiration of like maximizing human potential that we wanted people to buy into, and getting people to be the best version of themselves, and that doesn't mean you're a coder, that doesn't mean you're a filmmaker, it, it just means that you're doing what you wanted to do as best as you could, given what we were able to provide. And, so we're very organic most of the time we had people that joined our team um antonio our chief operating officer had worked with me since 2010 wow. so we had you know and we actually met on twitter back in the day when twitter was just all tech people and it was all about like sharing ideas about tech and what it could be and you know we just kind of hit it off because he enjoyed sports i enjoyed mm-hmm. sports enjoy tech, so we have references about Jordan or LeBron, talking about a new tech platform, and we just really connected. And um, so that's, you know, Antonio's really been a big foundation of what we do, and he doesn't get nearly as much credit, and he doesn't want any credit, to be perfectly honest, but he's one of those people that really makes sure that we tactically get the steps done. Uh, He does a lot of the stuff behind the scenes to make sure everything from contacting, People to organization to everything. Um, so met him through Twitter in 2010. Ken Watkins, who's our chief technology officer, uh, met him at a hackathon that was at our space. So okay. he uh, was just there as a participant. You know, we had a lot of conversations. Got introduced to him by a, a mutual friend, and then all of a sudden, you know, he started working with us. So it wasn't like we put out a job posting. It was just really organic, but. I think it was a lot of folks that just saw what we were trying to do and said okay i know you're not where you want to be but like let's see if we can move the needle a little bit more
0: gotcha and usually so when you're doing something that's new and dynamic sometimes people like to copy or do things that you're also doing has that ever deterred you yeah you know there's some
1: times where you feel like you were um, some folks were influenced by the work that you were doing but you know, a lot of the work we were doing Mm -hmm. were influenced by others. So, you know, you borrow from different people, and I think um, as an organization, you can get mad and say, oh, this person is trying to do what we're doing or stealing our story, and that's really not productive, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think if we're out here to maximize human potential, we should be innovating our model, which is why, you know, we always evaluate what we're doing and say, it's good, you know, maybe it makes the press, or maybe it's something people talk about, but are we really truly happy with this. Is this something that I would want to put myself through and feel like this is good enough? And uh, so we continue to innovate our model and start to think about cool creative ways. And when you're always innovating, even when people think it's very basic, um, you know, you really start separating yourselves and really defining what niche that you fill. And uh, and it's it's fine. Um, but I think overall, we've always kind of stayed a couple years ahead of what the trend is. And you we know, don't, think about
0: slowing down so you are a grassroots organization and you started you said from the bottom no resources little money if someone's out here and they have an idea what do you recommend like let's say first you have to obviously start kind of with a business model but tips for how people can get started
1: Uh, i guess you know my number one tip always is it doesn't have to be the prettiest thing in the beginning, you know. It could, it's not going to be a Picasso. It could be a, the drawing of a five-year-old. You know, it doesn't have to. You know, everybody spends so much time thinking about like, what's that perfect way in which it's supposed to lay out, and you know, some of your customers are ultimately going to want to expect perfection in certain ways. But if your pricing model is appropriate, then they'll make those trade-offs. Some might say, hey, you're the accessible. Um, range and some of the more expensive range and you don't necessarily have to be you know full bells and whistles you can be Southwest Airlines so we really try to be Southwest Airlines it's like hey you just getting peanuts and a can of pop actually a cup of pop because you're not getting the whole can uh, and that's how we've had to start um, because that's what worked with our model um, I think the second piece of advice that I always have is you know um find a great way to tell your story um, because i think ultimately someone might look at what your your product your service your offering and say that's not perfect but if your story matches something that they identify with then they'll feel better supporting you and i think if your story is authentic you're doing it for the right reason people tend to want to work with people or shop with people that they feel like stands for something of a higher purpose and i think in you know today's political climate and social climate, it means that now more than ever before. And I think the third piece is, you know, just try your best, you know, like work your hardest, you know, I think there's a a Mark Cuban um, quote that I always subscribe to, is just the only thing you can control is your effort. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to have, stand in front of the computer, sit in front of the computer for eight hours and act like you did eight hours of work, but you might have only done two hours of work. But being honest with yourself, you know? um, And being able to say, like, how much did I really get done? How much did I move the needle? How much did I really get better? And use your own metric. You know, you can stay up all night, but if you're watching Netflix in the background and you just have a computer, (laughs) you know, it's like the people in the library when you're in college. And you know, you got the floor where some people are socializing. You got some floor, the floor where people are doing work. Like I've always said, you know what? It's more fun on that floor where people socializing, but, you know, what? I got to get this work done. I don't care um, as much. So it's really about doing that. And when people see that you're working your tails off, even if you don't have the perfect product, they're like, man, I want to support the person who's trying as best as they can, given the resources that they have. Because there's always going to be someone with more resources, someone going to be with a better product or service but you know if you have a hustle you have the ability to tell a great story and ability to really just get started and push it out there and get customers to help refine your product you I think ultimately being a, in a better place
0: right and one thing that you mentioned getting started because we were talking about this a little earlier the whole idea of perfection and everything doesn't have to be perfect But a lot of people, I feel like that's their attitude. It has to be this way and it has to be perfect. Nothing is perfect in the world. So I think that's a great tip. And one thing I want to revisit is you mentioned that Blue, your motto is you want people to be the best them. And so you do (laughs) offer classes and different um, events. So let's talk about those a little bit. I was a member of one of your 1919 classes, so I did public speaking. But what other classes do you have at the new location and what's coming up?
1: Yeah, so, you know, we really changed our model. So we really did a lot of cohort-based programs, and they were great and, you know, really excited about it. And we started to think about, like, how do we make the pre- and post-program experience even better? Mm. So if you got, you know, we for our 1919 program was our women in technology program and what we found through our research is that women love learning about tech and this cohort environment was a much better than trying to learn tech in other capacities and programs that we had and so it was an attraction to be able to build in uh, a community on top of a class Mm -hmm. because we looked at our numbers and hey we just had way more men taking our classes than we had women and we started to say hey how do you even up those numbers, and that was one way we were able to do that and finding ways to you know, have a program by women for women, which was really important. Um, so we had four different cohorts, one in public speaking, another one in WordPress development, another one in graphic design, and uh, the public speaking piece. And uh, you know, it was just an experience, a 10 to 12-week process, and at the end there's a demo day and present what you learned. So we've taken that and said, okay, we were happy with that, but we weren't as happy as we could be. And we started to think, okay, how do we on-ramp people for our cohort programs so we can increase attendance, so we can make sure that there's a little bit of an increased need to do your best in those programs? And we started to uh, create, you know, which is very similar to the collegiate system of like 100, 200 level, 300, and 400 level. is a set of courses that are kind of prerequisites that are even less of a commitment. Um, you get a chance to see if this is the community that you wanna participate in and really try a bunch of different things before you participate in a cohort because um, we really wanted to make sure our retention was better. We wanna make sure our evaluation was better. We wanted to make sure we standardize our classes even more so that if an instructor wasn't able to provide that instruction you know, for that for the fall term or whatever, that that student coming in the winter term was getting the exact same experience. Um, so what we're doing now is really standardizing a lot of our curriculum and really putting in course objectives and all these things that I, you know, I used to teach at North Park University. So bringing in all that stuff, uh, not to make it more intense or less community, but also but to make it more impactful. Um, so we're really kind of stripping all those things down into these two and three hour prerequisite classes before we restart and jumpstart our cohort based programs. And on the flip side is what we're doing is making sure that there's something that is next for the students that finish the cohort. So we're working on a bunch of different institutional capital opportunities that want to invest in our cohorts. So if you have a strong pre and a strong post program, then it makes the actual program in the middle that much stronger and so that's what I'm excited about and so we have a bunch of different institutional capital partners that um, want to invest in our entrepreneurs and we're just making sure we give them a process so they feel better about that. So some of the announcements that we'll have you know, in the next couple of months are towards institutional partners that are going to put in real capital to be able to uh, invest in these entrepreneurs and that's what's really exciting because all of a sudden there's a pathway there's a way to say hey I start day 1 this is what class I need to take or this is the pathway and then at the end like how do we streamline that process so that institutional capital partners feel that much better and it's that much easier for them to put real capital into the entrepreneurs hands
0: I can't wait to see what the future holds now everyone's you know going to be streamlined so that's exciting And then you guys still do the rework program
1: yeah so rework is uh our workforce development software sales program and you know so much about like being in the tech community is talked about a you know coding and yes that's important but there's also other ways in which people are contributing positively to tech organizations and uh you know i'm one of those people that think everybody needs some sales Training because the ability to sell yourself, your product, your service, your offering, sometimes that's more important than what your actual product is. Um, do I believe in you? Do I believe in your ability to articulate what makes your company better than everybody else who's competing? So um, they go through a 12-week process, a cohort-based model, and at the end, they're placed into a bunch of different uh companies, and the average salary has been 45000 um, and some have really been able to progress their career, but it's a great partnership with Rework, um, which is an organization that's a member of our space, and we found ways to take kind of our marketing and branding power plus their curriculum-based yeah. model and put it all together, and we're looking to kind of take that and really being able to do that even on a larger basis with more workforce development
0: programs. So it sounds like a lot of classes at Blue, a lot of opportunities to learn about the tech industry, and a lot more to come.
1: Yeah, you know, it's um, you know, as I mentioned before, we're just trying to always evolve our platform. But you know, we really, you know, have been fortunate to have some momentum, um, and we. You know, I'm paranoid that that momentum will stop, so I start, you know, trying to figure out better ways of improving what we do or processes so that, once again, people can feel like, hey, I can get the exact same experience for a more accessible price um, in a more welcoming community with people that are very like-minded. And when you can do that and standardize that, it allows me to work on, like, all the things that I really want to work on as well, too, that have nothing to do with Blue 1647, which I'm excited about.
0: So what do you see as the future for Blue?
1: Yeah, um, I've never been asked that before. Um, I think the future of Blue is really an opportunity where folks have standardized curriculum. They can learn in a bunch of different ways where they're online. We have an online academy, Blue Academy, that will be launching very soon that uh, will be kind of a... blended learning experience with our classroom experience um, with a built-in development environment and everything so okay. everything that you do in class you can do online and and really make that classroom experience that much more powerful and also allows us pre-assessments post assessments and really uh, adaptive learning opportunities that really can get people to the next level so with the online offline you get the same kind of level of instruction same type of instructors uh, more live streaming of our classes and workshops and events that we already do and just bring it together um, but also thinking about really software tools that we'll be building ourselves that kind of aid businesses that can do it once again at a more accessible price we can bundle it in with everything that we do so if you're a blue member you get software you get classes you get workshops you just get a whole bunch of things and you know i You know, Ken always makes fun of me, but I call it this blue prime package, you know, where you're a member, but you get so many different things that just can help your career, help your business. So hopefully, no one has an excuse not to be a member.
0: Great. And where can listeners or people who are interested? find out about these classes and all the new things that will be happening at Blue. Yeah,
1: we're launching an app very soon to connect it all a little bit more seamlessly. Um, we have an app for our youth program which is great and we're like, oh, why don't we do it for adult programs too? But you can go to blue1647.com You can go to The Blue Lacuna for our Chicago space that uh, will, um, if you're a member, you get a chance to see the list of classes, resources, activities, partnerships, just everything and, uh, we do a lot of social media because we thought it was important and we think it's important not to just push our brand but just to show that like all these people are building all these people are doing it so like why not you you know it, right. some people say oh man i need someone to build a website like well if you learn a little bit about building a website when you're working with that website developer you can point out different things to make your website better even if you don't build it yourself but if you can build it yourself and build it for other people you know not only generate a little bit of side cash, but also really empower them. So that once again, everybody's got kids, cousins, nephews, and hey, you know what? You need to learn that stuff because I learned that stuff. And then all of a sudden you create environments that are outside of Blue, outside of our space. And, you know, it's just taking place where someone who's never heard of Blue is being impacted by Blue, despite the fact that they've never um, come in one day.
0: So... We've heard a lot about Blue, but let's turn to Emil the person. Oh. So how did you get into the tech industry? I know the answer, but for everyone else who doesn't.
1: Yeah, you know, it's been a windy path to get into tech. Um, you know, I think it started off when my dad bought my brother and I a Commodore 64 <laughs> back in the day, you know, and... Uh, he didn't really give us instructions he didn't know how to use it he just brought it home and we were like animals like pressing buttons and seeing how it worked but figured out how to work and then it was like this ms dos operating system so we were figuring out how to look at different directories we're figuring out how to do cool things because all we wanted to do is play games you know Um, right so um you know and at the time i didn't know we were like (laughs) Pseudo programming and figuring out different ways of you know exploring and hacking the computer, but that was one piece of it all. And then as we got older, my brother really got more involved, more technically than I did. Um, but then you know we were part of different like hacker groups on like Prodigy and AOL and stuff like that. So you know we. My brother would be making programs and how to fill up people's mailboxes on their computers. <laughs> cool. So me and him were like working together. Cause at the time AOL had a limit of uh, how many messages you can have before your mailbox was full. So right. when you send that message to someone and their mailbox is full, they would get a message saying that email was uh, not delivered. So uh, you know that's what we would do. And you know he showed me a little bit, and he programmed this, programmed that. And, we learn from these different hacker groups and you know, and be able to see different things. And so we just played around with a bunch of things, you know. He was far more technically superior than I am, but we just, you know, this was just something fun to do to pass some time when I wasn't playing baseball. And uh, fast forward even more, um, worked on a couple of different tech projects that didn't work. Uh, you know, we, we tried to do this uh, kind of like YouTube type of uh, service the same time youtube was but our encoder for a video encoder wasn't as fast or as quick and we didn't we were real strict about uh pirated content whereas youtube wasn't so <laughs> that didn't work out you know we had a couple other things that just didn't work out um, but we tried to build stuff and it didn't work which is fine uh, um then i you know th- you know in my career i was uh stayed here in Chicago uh, worked with President Obama for a couple years uh, um, after that did some investment banking but still like wrote for different tech publications like uh, read write web and mashable and venture beat so always stayed up on tech mm-hmm. and everything and um, so yes yeah, you know how we kind of got started and you know while I was teaching you know a lot of my students needed jobs and internships and uh, so we just, you know, created a little program and that's where Antonio and I got together. We were just on Twitter one day and we were like, yo, man, wouldn't it be cool if these kids was like making apps and like imagine if a kid was starting when they're 14 and it be a monster when they're 24. Like that's all we could think about. And that was before real mobile app development became a huge thing. And so we just said, all right, let's try it and see what could happen. And that's kind of how we got started.
0: Interesting. So you always had tech in your blood, like it was always something you know you were playing around with. So do you think that parents should kind of throw kids into that, you know, just give them some kind of tech type toy and see where they go with it?
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's easier than it was before, you know, Uh um, to do that, to get involved. Even socially, you know, like I wanted to take more computer science classes, but I was like, Man, this "Is this cool? Am I messing um, up this sports person persona?" You know all the stupid things you think about as a teenager, but like now it's cooler than it ever was before, and, you know. And that's why we created the Blue Studios program because we didn't want it to be like ten to twelve week program, which is very intensive, very intentional, and it's not about tinkering. It's about like getting to the end. And we just said, "Hey, like." Like Let's allow kids to be kids and explore and try different things and they'll figure out what they like to figure out. And after that, you know, there's a pathway to get to more intentional, rigorous training, but, like, just experiment, you know. One day you might do some chemistry. Another day you might do some uh, hardware or software or the combination. And, you know, that's what really um, the idea of studios was to say, like, hey, the 14-year-old me and the 4-year-old me, you know what would they want and that's what we, we tried to create
0: okay and also you mentioned you're you've been in chicago you know your whole life so ha- how have you seen the tech industry change and i can tell you from my perspective i moved here seven years now and i've seen a huge difference just between the support groups the organizations that have formed how does it look from your perspective as a native
1: it's night and day you know um That was part of some, like, early tech, uh, just workshops, like when Tech Cocktails first started, Mm, Um, you know, we uh, had a chance to attend some of the different events, and we started our own set of uh, workshop series and, like, mini-conferences. We brought some people from Silicon Valley out to talk about what they were working on, and we had a couple hundred people that showed up, so, and that was 2007, 2008, it's a while ago, and uh, so you got a chance to see what the tech community was doing, and it still was like really, really early, um, and you got a chance to meet some people that, you know, that I know to this day, and that's what helped Blue in many capacities, like uh, these are relationships from like 10 years ago in tech, mm-hmm. and these aren't just like new relationships, um, so, you know, got a chance to meet the Harper Reeds really early when he was at Threadless, and all that mm-hmm. other kind of stuff, so... You know, there was a group that we were part of called the Chicago Founders, and these were like um, 2007. And uh, you know, they would just get together. It was about 20 people. It was only people who were starting companies, and uh, just would have a bunch of different meetups and stuff like that. So. To go from like, that was one meeting, one month, to last time I talked to Scott at Technori and he said there's like uh, 45 meetings, like big events a, a month now in Chicago. Wow. It's completely different. So, you know, it's really forced some people to rethink their models in terms of like how many events you should have. Like if you're an events business in tech, like you're going to be competing against a lot of people now. Um, you're going to have to provide more you know better food and drink like it's it's much more competitive to get a lot of people at an event now and it's a good thing because it just means that it's spreading and what i'm more most excited about is these conversations are spreading outside of downtown river north they're spreading mm-hmm. into the communities where people are talking about digital currency and 3d printing and circuit boards like all over the city and the, the suburbs as well
0: actually that reminds me when we were on a radio show and we were talking about diversity in tech and how everyone has an event everyone's speaking now when we were on the radio show you made a comment along the lines of we can't speak our way to diversity so do you still have that feeling because it sounds like the events are helpful from your perspective
1: they are helpful but i think it can be the only model you Mm -hmm. know i think um and this is something i've had to like temper on my own like time commitments is like you can go and speak at some event every single day in a month <laughs> that like that's what your goal was you know right but at the end of the day like you've got people excited then they go home and they're like okay what do we have you know mm-hmm. i just think that we're past the point of talking about the need for diversity like everybody knows it we're past the point of talking about why we need to start earlier and earlier with kids to get them involved into tech like we're past that. Like, let's push the envelope and say, like, where do you build? What have you built? Can we have a more show and tell type of format to these engagements as opposed to talking about it as thought leaders, right? Right now, you can be a thought leader in cryptocurrency without having a cryptocurrency company. You know? And right. It's important to educate people, but they can Google search and there's conversations online. like. At what point in time do we say, hey, what are the top 10 cryptocurrency companies in Chicago that blacks are behind? Mm -hmm. Show me that. Like, that's the one I want to go to. Let's see what they're working on. Somebody's doing a mining rig. Somebody else is doing their own ICO that they're putting out, and so on and so forth. So, like, that's where we need to evolve if we want to be competitive, you know? Just knowing is not good enough. Like, we have great podcasts like yours where you can listen to what people are uh, working on. But let's just pair that up, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. with people who are actually working in tech, you know, not talking about you should be working in tech, you know, and it's just different.
0: So do you feel there needs to be, it's almost like less conversation, more action, right?
1: Yeah, you know, it's just, you know, I just think that we're in a unique position in Chicago uh, because so many things are going on, but if we want to be the leader, we have to show leadership and showing leadership is doing the tough things. And the tough things is having a physical space, is having a physical product or a digital product or a company. Like those are the hard things and we got to start doing the hard things because the other people are doing the hard things. And You know, it's it's hard for us to get credibility and saying you need to hire this person or you need to fund this company when we haven't vetted or shown any companies, you know. Um, And it's not easy to do, but it's necessary because it just allows you to get those failures out the way. You know, like I talked about, we had several failures, you know, independent projects that just didn't work. Mm -hmm. But I take those learnings for the next project. So that's why when I work on something now, it's just a higher likelihood of success than it was eight, 10 years ago.
0: So sounds like the Chicago tech scene, there's still a lot of growth and learning lessons to be had.
1: Yeah, I mean, can anybody name the top five companies that have launched in the past five years out of Chicago? You know? Um you look at the amount of venture capital that's been raised and you know, that's been publicized lately saying, hey, one point eight billion dollars was raised in twenty seventeen in Chicago, but if you look at it, eighty five percent went to the largest five firms doesn't mean you have a deep bench and we need to focus on deep benches not just a couple stars in the lineup who are already very well off beforehand you know uptake which is one of our great partners um, they do a lot of workshops for us they you know but they're founded by brad keywell he's gonna raise capital so if he raises 400 and 450 million That has no bearing on an individual trying to start a company. It doesn't mean it's easier. He started a billion-dollar company, so he's going to raise money. Versus, you know, Jane Doe on the South Side who's trying to get going. It's just not the same.
0: Right. And what ways, then, can we help people who are doing amazing things, but like you said, they aren't getting that exposure, how can we help them to get to the forefront? I
1: think it's... Like, buy the product, download this service, like, start sharing and start really not idolizing people with narratives and talking about what needs to be done, but really idolizing the person who's out there with their business, with, that's paying hosting fees and office pay. Like, Like, let's push that envelope, and when we do, we're gonna all be better off. You know, it's important, you know, we inspire people to want to be better, but. You know, I can watch a YouTube video for that. Like, let's start highlighting people and uh, do what we can to support those that are doing it. You know, you've done that with your podcast. It's like, hey, this person started a company. This person started a service. Like, that's where we should be.
0: But what about those people that they're kind of almost what I would call hidden figures? Cause they're just not people we see in the forefront. It's like almost how can we get their story out? And maybe that's just something that we as a community need to do better is get our story out and let people know we're out here. We have this product or service and support us. But is there any tips or advice you have for people who are on the bench right now, but how we can help them and how they can help themselves? Yeah,
1: I mean, there's no easy answer, but I think, you know, some of the people that are actually in tech are probably the quietest ones. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, you know. You work a full-time job in tech. How many people truly know what you do as a tech professional? Like, So I would challenge you. Like, hey, share that stuff. I know, you know, but the majority don't know, you know. And that gets overlooked for someone who's more out there about putting together another panel or another, you know, event that's, a, that's social, like, like there's a lot of people in tech. There's no way in which we're trying to like, you know, minimize ourselves and saying, oh, we're minorities, we're minorities in tech and thinking there's four or five, there's a lot, you know, and just want them to bubble up and say, Hey, I got a regular job in tech. That's great. That's inspiring. And you've done great work with Black Girls Code and some other organizations. You volunteer with Paige and Paxton so that's important.
0: Yeah, I'm just thinking, like you said, there's some people who probably don't fully know that I have a full time job and do this. So definitely makes me think I was at a class recently where someone was speaking about promoting yourself. It's how hard it is sometimes for our communities to actually people to promote themselves
1: yeah you know it doesn't have to be look at me i'm the best person in the world with a super website that flashes and you know confetti <laughs> pops out my computer you know but right. it's just to take that responsibility and say hey i jane doe have work in tech and this is what i do and i want to inspire more youth to do that too and hey it doesn't have to be a you know, a documentary about me, but yeah, it's definitely important to really show more of that.
0: So speaking of empowering the youth, you've taught at colleges. What were some of the classes you taught?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've taught everything from data science to new venture formulation, financial managerial accounting, just because of my finance background. A lot of microeconomics and consumer behaviors. I'm really passionate about markets and the way they move and the way we think about things. And there's there's nothing more powerful than teaching someone. You know, you don't have all the answers. You know, but the process about preparing yourself to teach, actually engaging with folks and getting their feedback and finding creative ways of getting them to understand. It's nothing more powerful than that. Um, And that's why you know, try to make that a a large note of the work we do, and uh, I just think moving forward, if we make it easier and better for practitioners to teach, to inspire, then, man, some amazing things are going to happen, and this is not just a one-year plan, this is a 10-15 to year plan. Would
0: you recommend teaching? To your peers and people that you think have like that thought leader expertise. I do.
1: I just think that you find out more about yourself. So you mm. know, it's on a selfish standpoint, like you really learn a lot about yourself. Uh, but then on the other end, it's like so much that could be shared. You know, and when you're a practitioner and you've worked in the space and you bring that experience towards something, and when people ask questions and challenging those thoughts and counter examples that bubble up to the surface. Like, you really can uh, improve yourself, you can improve the people that are working, and you know that's what it's all about, this knowledge transfer and figuring out creative ways, and just the classroom experience, I think is really one underutilized way of, of just doing that.
0: For myself, I've always thought about maybe teaching a class or something, so I'm intrigued to see what happens in the future.
1: I'm saying you need to teach a class at Blue. <laughs>
0: We can make that happen. We have
1: to make that happen. So make sure this hits the actual podcast. uh, (laughs) You're
0: going to be holding me accountable? I'm holding
1: you accountable. But I think, you know, your listeners that listen to your podcast and listen to the people you bring on, you know, learn uh, quite a bit, especially Mm -hmm. about people they may not have known about. But I think... It's important, too, for people to hear from you um, and hear the expertise that you bring in as a practitioner that can be able to add value. And when we take all these people with subject matter expertise and put it all together, then it makes it a rich experience. And, you know, I know you have a lot of time commitments, but hey, teaching one class a quarter wouldn't hurt you. And in okay. fact, it would. I'm saying it will help you.
0: We can make it happen. We have
1: to. I'm saying right now. <laughs> shoot antonio on email we'll get you on the schedule we'll work through it you know we have templates and other things but you know i think people need to hear from you
0: all right we're gonna make it happen so it's cool to hear first yes it is it is so some final questions for you okay so do you consider yourself a techie (laughs) I should
1: have a quick answer to that. I don't think so because I think what I do combines so many different types of things, and uh, technology is a way of solving that problem or enhancing that service. Um, I just think that the line is blended, and you know, previously there was a camp that said, "Hey, you are either techie, you're either creative, you're either." Uh, corporate person or whatever and all those are blending together now so like we're all techies and you know the more we have that narrative narrative that like it blends into so much and you know work I do in film like it just all blends in and I want to make sure everybody feels like they can be a part of it.
0: So, another question that I have is Chicago is growing, but do you ever feel that we can possibly be like a Silicon Valley or the top tech city competitor?
1: I think so. I think it just takes the right mindset. Um... You know, in that study that they showed for last year, $1.8 billion was the investment in Chicago startups, still a majority to uh, just a couple, a handful of different companies. We mm-hmm. you compare that to Silicon Valley, that's $32 billion. It's a big difference, you know? Right. Um, and Silicon Valley didn't happen overnight. I watched a fascinating documentary on just the growth of it, it just didn't happen overnight. But I think what we need to focus on is making sure we have the deepest bench of people. Because when you have the best farm system, you have the best like, group of people that are actually starting to tinker and build and figure things out like that's a 15-year investment and when you want to attract the Amazons and other large companies to be here one of the biggest things that they look for is like how much talent is going to be able to work in my company so Mm -hmm. if I was the mayor of Chicago and elected officials working with someone like Blue I would say hey How do we come up with a 100,000 employee or tech-trained employee type um, goal over the next 10 to 15 years? And what partners, what resources, what people do we need to do to do that? And when you do that 10 to 15 years and you increase that population of people, imagine what's going to be created accidentally because two people were in a training program said, you know what, I don't really want to work for a company, let's start our own. What happens when and that's fascinating they say that for every tech high-tech trained person they create 2.6 jobs because Mm -hmm. ultimately they start companies or they create a multiplier effect with their companies so like let's focus on that let's not focus on you know hoping four or five chosen people are gonna win for us like they may win but if we got the deepest bench we just increase the likelihood of our success
0: patience is key right
1: it is, you know, like how do you have your company last long enough for some good things to happen, you know? Mm-hmm. Like so much for blue is all about like, all right, how do we not die? <laughs> you <laughs> know? We spend so much time like, how do we not die? And I heard uh, Paul Graham say, who uh-huh. founded White Combinator, like, you almost have to be like a, a roach. Like a roach has lasted thousands and thousands <laughs> and years because they made themselves so hard to kill. And Mm -hmm. if you think about your companies as like constantly being able to evolve, iterate, iterate, but not die and continue Mm -hmm. to iterate, like you're gonna fall into some great things. Like Groupon didn't start off as Groupon. It started out as something called The Point, you know? And Mm -hmm. Andrew Mason, who founded that, I met him early, you know, when he first launched that company and you're able to see like, when you last long enough you get some funding you know or some ways of staying sustainable like you can pivot to something that's the true opportunity and be able to go after
0: so we've talked about the future of chicago future of blue but what is the future for Emil?
1: um <laughs> you know these questions about me <laughs> no one cares about me so um but i'll say you know the the future of me is really being able to get Blue to the point where things are automated things are involve less and less of me so the more I can replace myself within this organization the better off um, I want to get into things like start a venture capital firm for Blue so that we can be able to invest in our entrepreneurs I want to get into the point where I'm working on my own software companies that I started working on that I failed before to say, hey, like, I know more people now. I can sell better than before and all those things. So I really want to jump into that. But also think about, like, um, some things that i am become more and more fascinated with is transportation, logistics, supply chains, and things like that. And, you know, like, my long-term goal is to make it so that, the African diaspora um, has a sustainable s- supply chain so that I can build something in, in Haiti, I can ship it to Kenya, and it's designed in Inglewood or here in Pilsen at our space. And really keep that process because you look at some of these different countries, their middle class is evolving so fast. And uh, you know, there's a if we create a Shenzhen but distribute it, Throughout all these African countries, like what could that be? You mm-hmm. know, and that's what I'm really fascinated with. And this comes with shipping logistics, shipping containers, is you know trucks, you know boats, and all that. And so that's where I want to go, man. Who knows if I get there, but hopefully, you know, if I have some kids, they'll get there <laughs> for
0: me. <laughs> and then, because you are such an innovative person, I have to ask: all these new technologies are out the Bitcoin, blockchain. What do you see as the biggest contender for 2018?
1: If you ain't thinking about artificial intelligence, machine learning and chatbots into everything you do, like you are going to be replaced, you know? And everyone thinks like, oh, what is an incubator or a tech space that does kids and adult coding like have to do with that? It's like, that's what I'm bringing into it now. Um, so that once again, you can text a certain number and get a response that is based off the data of stuff that we've done, so we can provide better customer service, so that mm-hmm. if you take our online coursework, you have adaptive learning environments where you get a problem wrong, then it gives you a problem that they think you can get right. Like, that's what I'm baking into it now, so that, once again, and I think that's going to be the normal, you know? Mm-hmm. And if you're in business and you're not thinking about that, you know, somebody else is.
0: Well, Emil, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and... And one thing that we didn't mention while we were talking, Blue has several locations. Yeah. So where are the other locations in case people want to visit? Yeah, so
1: last year we had 11 cities where we had programs. Um, So we really tapped out. Um, It was a lot, you know. And that was the need why we have kind of retracted a little bit and said, okay, some of the cities that weren't performing as well as we wanted to, we're going to back up a little bit and restart that programming in the fall with our standardized curriculum. Mm Because if I'm teaching something in Chicago, it should be taught the same way in Gary, St. Louis, uh, Nashville, Memphis, and all the places that we're doing that. So we're starting um, a bunch of our new programs. We have a, another full-time location in Haiti, which I'm like super passionate about, um, with my family being Haitian. Um So, yeah, we're just uh, doing a lot more and really thinking about now, like, ownership of our locations as opposed to strategic partnerships, which just allows us more flexibility allows us more leverage to be able to do things. So we, you know, just as much as I look at, you know, tech curriculum, I'm looking at floor plans, I'm looking at electricity needs and all those other uh, things that aren't as exciting but necessary to make sure we can truly provide a great foundation.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you for your time today. I hope you enjoyed and you shared a lot with my listeners. So I hope you enjoy your time too. No, absolutely. It's always great seeing you. I don't see you enough. I know. Thanks for listening to Black Tech Unplugged. I'm Dina McKay and you can find me on Instagram at dina D-E-E-N-A underscore M-C-K-A-Y. And if you haven't already, please go subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. If you have a few extra minutes, make sure to leave a five-star review too. It would help me out a lot and help other people find the podcast. Until next time.